And once again, let me welcome you here. My name is Ben Griffith. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting with us either for the first time or if you're a regular visitor, uh, we're glad that you're here. Welcome, and we'd love to get to know you. We're continuing our series through Mark's gospel, and we find ourselves in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. You see that printed there in your bulletin. Some of you may watch uh, this show or some version of this kind of show, like The Voice or American Idol or So You Think You Can Dance. There's all kinds of versions of that kind of show out there. Um, But there's something in in common in in all of those. Let's just take um, American Idol, uh, for instance. Contestants come onto the show, lots of contestants, thinking that they have something to bring to the table, thinking that they have something that this panel of celebrity judges and that the world is going to recognize and celebrate about them. And so, um, week after week, day after day, you know, at the beginning of the show, contestants come on and they stand before this panel of judges and someone will say, all right, show us what you got. And inevitably, they, they do. Now, whether or not they can actually sing or not, that's not the point. But everybody that gets on that show thinks that they, thinks they got something, right? Like, you don't go on that show unless you think you can sing, unless you think you got something. Um, but nobody goes on that show knowing they don't have anything to offer. Um, you've never seen this kind of moment where someone stands behind the microphone and the, the, the celebrity judge says, all right, show us what you got. And someone looks back at them in the eye and in complete honesty and vulnerability says, I can't sing. I can't do it. I'm a terrible singer. You've never seen that, but you've, but you've definitely never seen someone do that. And then the celebrity panel, like, all press their buttons saying, I want that guy on my team. I realize that's the voice. That's not American Idol. But nobody wants that guy. But you've never seen the panel then, like, freak out and say, that's what I'm looking for. That's what I want. Something like that happens here in our passage, though. Let's set the stage just for just a moment. If you remember last week, um, Jesus is up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and they see him in all of his glory in what's called the transfiguration. They see the curtains peeled back, and they see Jesus as he really is. But mountaintop experiences don't last for very long, and so our passage, our passage this morning is what comes after. Peter, James, and John are walking down the mountain, and this is the scene that they come to. Uh, they hear some arguing. They hear some shouting up in the distance. They see people running past them, going to this crowd that's gathering around the other nine disciples and the scribes and Pharisees. And they're shouting and arguing and bickering going on, yelling and finger pointing and insulting. And the dialogue might have gone something like this. One disciple says, look, back up, Thomas. You didn't do that right. Let, Let me do it. And then another disciple says, no, no, that's not how you say it. Look, let me try. And he rolls up his sleeves. And then you hear one of the scribes um, butt in and say, look, I knew that you guys were fakers. I knew there was something about you Jesus freaks that was was off. And now now everybody can see it. Now everybody can see that this adoring crowd that's been following y'all, everybody will be able to see you as you really are. There's nothing to you, and you've been faking it the whole time. And then another disciple responds, look, it worked last time, I promise. Let me try one more time. And the tensions are mounting and frustrations mounting. Everybody wants a front row seat to the excitement. That's what Jesus and his disciples would have seen as they're coming into the town and off of the mountain. 
that day. But Jesus would have seen something else too. He would have seen something that probably nobody else saw by this point. Um, as, there's, as the crowd is gathering and the tensions are rising and, and there's arguing and bickering, and the, Jesus would have seen this man huddling, huddling on the side, probably in the gutter somewhere with, with a little boy, and he's, and he's holding him, and he's stroking his head, and he's whispering to him, calm down, it's going to be okay. Um, trying, to, trying to bring this little boy uh, back, to, back to being calm again. Um, that's the scene. That's the scene, and it's heartbreaking. There's so much tension involved in it, but all of this sets the scene for one of the most famous and the most surprising professions of faith in all of church history, and also the briefest professions of faith. You're familiar with professions of faith. If you've been at, here, here at Cornerstone for any amount of time or been in a church tradition uh, where, where as a part of the service you, you have something called a profession of faith, whether it's the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or some other confessional, confessional statement where you stand up and you say, this is what I believe to be true. Well, this is, this is the most amazing, surprising, incredible professions of faith in all of church history because... It doesn't sound like a profession of faith at all. It, it, it sounds like somebody stepping up behind the microphone and, and Jesus saying, all right, show me what you got. And this man here says, I, I don't have what you're asking for. I believe. Help my unbelief. And it's that kind of profession of faith <laughs> that Jesus is holding out for us today as the posture that he wants to see, where he wants us to be, the kind of person that he loves and accepts. Um, so how do we see that at play? And what does Jesus want us to see here in this passage? Let's read and find out. Mark chapter 9, beginning of verse 14, this is God's word. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And so I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, oh, Faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. 
And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he rose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come now to to receive the food of your holy word. Would you take it and plant it deep in us so that we might bear fruit and love and joy and peace and every other fruit of your spirit? Lord, would you lead us further up and further in to what we're like and what you're like so that we can love you and trust you more as a result of being in your presence and hearing your voice this morning. We pray that, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen. So our passage this morning is about belief and unbelief. It's about what faith and false faith looks like. You remember we're in this passage here in Mark Uh, where Jesus is continually revealing and exposing how the disciples aren't there yet. There's so many commendable things that they're doing and saying and believing on the outside, but underneath, they're not there yet. And Jesus exposes and reveals that because he wants to bring us further up and further into what real belief looks like. What is real belief? What is real? What's the kind of faith that Jesus is inviting us into? Um, that's how we're going to approach our passage this morning, looking at it two ways. First of all, how does unbelief disguise itself? And then how does true belief reveal itself? Unbelief has a way of disguising itself, and true belief has a way of revealing itself. How do we see that at work in this passage this morning? Well, first of all, how does unbelief disguise itself? Notice this, this poor father... He brings his demon-possessed son to the disciples, and they can't help him. We've seen passages like this before. This wasn't their first rodeo. Um, but you, had to, you have to know that this really mystified and, and stumped the disciples. They've, they've cast out demons before, but something different happens here. Um, you remember way back in Mark chapter 6, Jesus had called the disciples to himself and given them authority to go and to heal and to cast out demons. And they come back to him after those journeys, and they're, they're saying, Jesus, it worked. We could do it. So this wasn't their first rodeo. What happened? Was it something wrong that they said? Did they forget the formula? Um, they had to be wondering, what is it? What did we bump into here? And their assumption is, it, something, whatever the failure is, whatever broke down here, it's something that's outside of us. It's something that's external to us. Maybe, maybe it's the words that we forgot to say. Maybe the formula's wrong. Maybe we, we weren't in the right kind of frame of mind. Or maybe, maybe even this was some kind of special ops, you know, Navy SEAL kind of demon that we've run into here. And Jesus hasn't really equipped us for this one. Our basic training didn't cover this. Um, and, it, and it's actually, it's, it's easy to think that that's what's going on when we read verse 29 and Jesus says, this kind can't be driven out by anything but prayer. It's easy to think, well, maybe Jesus is saying, this is like a major league kind of demon and the disciples are still in the minors at this point. They're just out of their league. They've, they've run into something they can't handle. But we're, 
we're going to get to that point in just a moment, but that's not what's happening here. Jesus wants his disciples to see that their failure is a result not of something that's external and outside of them, but of something that's internal, something that's inside of them. Jesus tells them, you couldn't cast it out. You were powerless before the enemy because of your unbelief, because of your faithlessness. Verse 19, his response when he hears that the disciples are cast out, he, you could just see Jesus rolling his eyes and exasperated. And the disciples are in the crosshairs here when he says, oh, faithless generation. That's not just a statement directed at like general humanity or even just at the scribes. He's talking to his disciples and he's saying, you represent, you're kind of a case in point for the way that everyone is responding to me. And he calls them faithless. In the other, in the other gospels, in Matthew and, and Luke, in, in the way that they record this story, Jesus tells them explicitly, you couldn't cast it out because of your little faith, because of your lack of faith. It's not something outside of you. It's something inside of you. The disciples at root level still didn't believe. At root level, Jesus calls them faithless. Now look, that's a little alarming. And you might even think, Jesus, you're going a little too far here. Like you're being a, a little too harsh. Let's be honest. Like they've been with you for years. They have a track record. They have history and success. They, they've done this before and they've messed up the first time and you're calling them faithless? Um, well, notice it's not that Jesus is calling them unregenerate necessarily, but he's saying that there's a there's a kind of unbelief that's at work in your heart that's not like, not like the kind of unbelief that you would expect. We typically tend to think about unbelief in terms of like militant atheism, you know, like Richard Dawkins, there is no God kind of unbelief, or like just hardcore, hardcore secularism, whatever. That kind of unbelief is serious, yes, but there's another kind of unbelief that Jesus is exposing in his disciples' hearts and that he wants to expose in our hearts that's just as dangerous. And it's the kind of unbelief that disguises itself. It's so subtle that it can sneak into our normal way of operating and we don't even know that it's there. Um, unbelief is a master of disguises, I want you to see. It can hide itself and mask itself in a person's heart and go undetected for great lengths of time. If you're a hunter, um, you know what it's like to wake up early in the morning and put on your camouflage gear and go out in the woods because you want to look like your surroundings, right? Um, if you're a hunter, well, you've heard about, you've heard about, you've heard about this. Um, but you, you put on camouflage. You want to look like a tree or like a bush or whatever. You don't want to look like your normal you know, house or office surroundings, you want to look like the woods so you can just kind of blend in. And if, if, you're, a, if you're kind of a long-time hunter, you probably have kind of a brand loyalty with certain brands of, of camouflage. You know, maybe you're all in on mossy oak and you're, you don't really like that real tree kind of pattern or design because you, you had a good experience with mossy oak that time, but the deer can see you when, when you're in, in your real tree camouflage. If you're not a hunter, those are just two different kind of brands of camouflage. Just take my word for it. But hunters tend to have their, their favorite kind of brands that they stick to. And I want you to see here that unbelief has brand loyalty 
to different kinds of spiritual, religious-looking camouflage that it's always dressing itself up in and disguising itself behind. And we see four of them at work here. Number one, we, we see that unbelief can disguise itself behind great success, behind a great track record. The disciples had done a lot of good things for Jesus at this point. They had a highlight reel, but their great success had turned into a great stumbling block because it had seeped into their pride and to their egos and had become a source of confidence for them. I've done this before. I know how to do it. Great success can be, can be a disguise for unbelief. Unbelief can, can disguise itself behind great theology. The disciples knew a lot. They had a lot of good information. They knew more about Jesus than anybody else on the planet. They were present when Peter had said, you're the Messiah. And Jesus said, yes, don't tell anybody yet. They had access to so much. But their, good, their, their great theology hadn't seeped down into their hearts yet to produce humility and to produce love. Instead, there's still so much self-confidence and self-reliance at work that unbelief is hiding behind their great theology. Unbelief is hiding behind their great motivations. They really wanted to help this couple. They wanted to help this son and this, and this father. They, the disciples were following Jesus. They wanted to be a part of what he was doing in the world and, and, and God's kingdom coming to bear and pushing back against the darkness. But there was still at work in their hearts motivations that were pointing in the opposite direction towards their own status and their own reputations. They're still arguing at this point about who's the greatest and which one is going to be sitting at Jesus' right hand when he comes into his kingdom. Unbelief can disguise itself behind great company. Y'all, you just cannot get a better circle of friends than these disciples had. They hung out with Jesus, and they hung out with his disciples. These are the kind of people, parents, that you want your children to grow up and hang out with. You cannot get a better crowd of people than, the, who, than who the disciples are hanging out with. But their company and who they're hanging out with doesn't necessarily define what's going on in their hearts. And Jesus calls them a faithless generation. Great success, great theology, great motivations, great company. That sounds great, doesn't it? But it was all just great camouflage because underneath all of these things was a heart posture of pride and self-reliance. And Jesus calls it what it is, unbelief. You see, look, it's not, it's not that they didn't believe in Jesus yet. It's that they still believed in themselves too much. It's not that they weren't convinced of Jesus' strength. It's that they weren't convinced of their own weakness yet. Unbelief is a master of disguises. And it can disguise itself behind a lot of great religious-looking camouflage. It can disguise itself in the heart of a, of a Christian teenager who grows up in the church and knows all the right answers, does all of the church things, doesn't hang out with all the bad guys and hangs out with all the good guys, doesn't drink or smoke or any of all that. And deep down in his heart is this conviction that I don't need Jesus as much as those people do. It can disguise itself in the heart of a Christian parent who does all of the right things and teaches their children all of the right answers and is doing it all right. And maybe deep down there's this posture that thinks my good parenting 
and not the sheer grace of God is my parents or is my children's only hope. And we could go on and on and on. Unbelief can disguise itself behind a lot of great religious-looking camouflage. Think about it like this. Behind all of those things was this heart posture that we tend to see at work. Um, if, you've, if you've been recently to lunch with co- uh, been to lunch or to coffee with a friend, and let, let's say you're sitting across the table at the coffee shop with your friend, and you just, had, you just both ordered coffee. They're both like three bucks each. It's not a big deal. And so when the bill comes and the waiter lays it on the table, you think, look, I'm a nice guy. You, you, grab the, you grab the bill and you say, I got it. I'll do it. And you look at your friend and you say, I, I got this. Don't worry about it. You can get the next one. You look at the bill and you think, okay, that's what the bill requires. I know my bank account. I've got this. I can do it. Like, I've got the resources. It's all there. I can do it. Notice that that's the heart posture that was at work behind all of the great religious-looking camouflage in the hearts of the disciples. When they encountered this poor boy with this demon, they thought about all their great success and motivations and company and everything else, and they thought, I've got this. I can do it. The bill came due, and they said, I can do this. And I want to be careful here, but notice that It's that kind of heart posture that can almost make the infinitely patient heart of Jesus lose it. Because Jesus, he almost loses his patience at this point. And he says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to bear with you? How long can I do this? Now listen. I bet that you're, when you see Jesus in this kind of frustrated, exasperated posture, you might think, okay, that's the Jesus that I'm, that's Jesus every time that I sin. That's Jesus every time he encounters my weakness and my failure and, and every way that I fall short. But y'all, it's not. That's Jesus every time that he encounters you, not thinking that you fall short. This is not Jesus, this is not the, the heart posture of Jesus towards you when, you, when you're honest and vulnerable about your weakness and your failures, when you're honest, this is the heart posture of his people when, when we're not honest, when we don't think that we're weak. You see, we can't exasperate Jesus with our weakness, but we can exasperate him with our delusions of our own strength. It's in, the, it's in those moments when the bill comes due, in whatever kind of setting it is, whether it's in our marriage or in our parenting or in, or in this struggle with sin that we keep on engaging in or with this addiction or that one, it's when the bill comes due and we look at it and we say, I've got this. I can do it. I'm enough. I've got this. I've got what it takes. How might that be at work in your heart this morning? Do you have the one thing that Jesus seems to really want his people to have, but that his people just really don't want to have, and that's weakness? What are you doing with those bills that are coming due in your life right now? Maybe that thing that, is, that just seems too much, that struggle or that relationship or that area of life that is the thing for you right now, And you just keep thinking, I've got this. 
okay, it didn't work last time, but it'll work this time. I know what to do here. I can do it. You see, we need to see that for what it is. When the bill comes due and the last thing that we think about is bringing it to Jesus and taking care of it ourselves, Jesus says that's unbelief. And he's inviting us into something better, something more life-giving, something more free and honest and, just, and beautiful. And it's the posture of this man here. We need to all sit at the feet of this poor, broken father here because this is how true belief reveals itself. In weakness, in honesty about, I can't pay this. You see, there's something that Jesus sees at work in this father that he hasn't seen in the disciples yet. (laughs) It's the one thing that he wants to see at work in our life and that he is going to, by his spirit, produce. (laughs) And that's weakness. Because it's only there that we can experience his strength. Notice in verse 21, Jesus asked this man, how long his son has been in this condition? And that question, you realize, it has nothing to do with the rest of the account. Like, that is pure sympathy. That is pure Jesus' Jesus heartbreaking for this man. The man says that his son has been in this condition from childhood. And one of the other Gospels tells us that this was his only son. And that'll just break your heart. You know, a parent really is as only... A parent is only as good as their worse off child, right? And so just imagine the hurt and the suffering, the lifetime of pain and confusion and unanswered questions that this man has endured. He brings them to the disciples. Jesus is up on the mountain, and so he thinks certainly these men, with all this track record of success, they'll know what to do. And they fail him. And so he comes to Jesus and he says, if you can do anything, help us. Now just put yourself in this man's sandals for a little bit. I mean, a lifetime of watching his son try to kill himself because of this demon that this man has no power over. Watching the the little boy that he loves hurt himself and feeling so helpless and so at the end of his rope. You can just imagine the questions and the doubting that that, would have, that that would have worked up in his heart over years. God, what are you doing? God, why is this happening? God, what did he ever do to you? You can just imagine the, the doubts that would have been at work in this man's heart. And then the gasoline that would have been poured on those doubts after, after this man brings his son to the disciples, the only people in the world that he thought could do anything about it, and they can't do anything about it, apparently. And so it's at that point that he comes to Jesus and he says, if you can do anything, help us. And Jesus says something surprising. We're not expecting this out of Jesus. We're expecting Jesus to just immediately go to heal, right? Immediately making it better, like he often does and like he could have. But he does something surprising. Instead of immediately responding to this man's plea for mercy, he seems to draw this line in the sand. He seems to lay down the gauntlet, and he says, okay, I will. But there's something, there's a condition that you need to meet. All things are possible 
including the restoration of your son for the one who believes. You've got to feel the weight that that would have put on this man's shoulders, the million pounds of weight that he would have crumpled under at that point because he's just watched the disciples fail because of their unbelief. And then Jesus says, but if you believe, then all things are possible. His son's life is on the line. Can you just imagine, in view of all of the doubt and the pain and the questions and the hurt, when, when this man hears Jesus say that, this man was probably thinking, I'm about to be honest with him and then he's going to walk away. Because he's going to see that I don't believe either. He's going to see that I'm struggling like they were. And, and that was the last hope for my little boy. But watch what he does. Jesus turns to him and he says, do you believe? Can you pay the bill? Do you have what it takes? And the man says, I do, but I don't. I, I can, but I can't. I believe. Help my unbelief. God, Jesus, you, all I can do is be honest here. I, I believe. I, I'm here. I'm standing right here. I, I do believe. But even as you see me standing right here, there's, there's so much that I don't know and that I'm struggling with and I don't have answers to. I believe. Help my unbelief. And it's at that point that Jesus says, finally, yes, that's what I'm looking for. That's what belief is. That's what real faith looks like. It's when you're presented with a bill that you look at and you say, I can't pay that. I'm not enough for that. I don't have the resources. I can't do it. Help me. And it looks weak, and it looks, it looks like failure. But Jesus says that's where faith starts. That's belief. And so you notice at the moment that the man is, is expressing his weakness and expecting Jesus to walk away, that's the moment that this man gets everything that he was asking for from Jesus. Notice, what is it, what is it that, that accessed all of God's power and strength here. It wasn't his power and strength. It wasn't the man's power and strength. It was his weakness. What is it that accessed all of God's ability to heal and redeem and restore? It wasn't the man's ability to believe. <laughs> it was the man's own recognition of his inability. That's what accessed everything that Jesus had to offer. True belief reveals itself in weakness, in owning your own helplessness and inability, even as contradictory as it may sound, of your own inability to believe. But you take that to Jesus, you take all of your weakness and you feel, you feel like you're hanging on by a thread, by a thumb, but you say, Jesus, I'm here, and I don't know where else to go. Don't judge me based on... on on my faith here, on the amount of my faith, but I'm here. That's when Jesus says, if you come to me with just a little bit, I won't give you just a little bit of me. I'll give you everything that you need. You see, when you bring your weak faith to a strong Savior, he will not be weak to you in return. He is never, 
He has never responded to you in proportion to the faith that you bring to him, ever. Which means he's looking for honesty. He's looking for vulnerability. He's looking for you to see yourself as you really are and take that to Jesus. And when you do, he gives you everything. True faith, true belief reveals itself in weakness. And I want you to notice one more thing here. It reveals itself, true faith, reveals itself in prayer. All right, well, how do we see that? Notice, the, notice that Jesus says this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. It's, again, it's, it's easy to, to read that and think, well, the disciples just didn't read the instructions. They weren't following the manual. They, they, they didn't know what they were up against. But what Jesus is saying is this kind, in other words, <laughs> demons, can't be driven out by anything except you taking your weakness and inability to the Lord and asking him for the strength to do what you need to do. We could put it into our language here and say, this kind can't be driven out by anything but handing Jesus the bill. Because when you think that you can handle it, when you think you can pay it, you can't do it. That's what Jesus is saying here. Prayer is an expression of weakness. There's probably not anybody in this room, if you're a believer, for any amount of time, there's probably nobody in this room that would raise your hand and say, I'm content with my prayer life. I pray enough, and I'm content. I don't think I need to grow in that area at all. We probably all know that we need to grow in this area. And so maybe in your attempts to grow, you've bought devotional books or maybe downloaded an app on your phone that will remind you. We need all sorts of props and reminders sometimes, don't we? Those things are helpful. But none of it will work unless you feel your own weakness. Because you will pray in proportion to the weakness that you feel. <laughs> um, you know, when Paul says, pray without ceasing in 1 Timothy, that's just shorthand for live your whole life face-to-face with your own need and with God's sufficiency. All the time, face-to-face. Don't leave that. That's your posture. Pray without ceasing. And the more that you dive into your own weakness, the more that you see those bills that are coming due in your life for what they really are as mountains of debts that you'll never overcome, the more you see those for for how they really are and the more that you are honest and vulnerable and say, I don't have what it takes. I can't pay that. You'll pray. (laughs) True faith, true belief is revealed in weakness. It's revealed in prayer. I wonder, did the disciples ever get it? Did this ever land for them? And and will will it ever land with us? There's a beautiful scene at the beginning of the book of Acts. Jesus has just um, ascended to the Father, and he's left his disciples in charge. Just like here in Mark 9, he went up to the mountain and he left his nine disciples in charge. They blew it the first time because they didn't pray, because they didn't feel their weakness. How's it going to play out this time? Well, we're not even 14 verses into the book of Acts and the story of how the gospel is going to spread throughout all the world when we we read this sentence. And the disciples with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. See, they got it. 
They were left in charge one more time. And the first thing that it did, when they saw that bill come due, the Great Commission, it forced them to their knees and they said, I can't do that. And that's how the book of Acts was written. (laughs) Out of that kind of posture, with the disciples engaging in that kind of humility, weakness, meeting all of God's strength, because that's where Jesus promises to meet you. And he says, my grace is made perfect in your weakness. And so I'm interested in you knowing that. And I'm never interested in in bringing you to a place where you don't think that you need me. That's what Jesus is at work in your life right now. That's what he's doing. Um, May he continue to do that beautiful work. May he continue to show us that he loves meeting people in this posture of feeling like they have nothing to offer, even very weak faith itself. But he loves to meet you there because that's where he gives you everything that you need. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, may we continue to experience that and to know that. Would you please, either for the first time or for the thousandth time, meet us in our weakness. Convince us of our, of our own lack and spiritual bankruptcy. Lord, so that we would take these bills that are coming due in our life, so to speak, to you. And in those moments, experience the freedom and joy of having a heavenly Father who meets us there every time with his perfect power and sufficiency. May we continue, Lord, to know that more and more. And we pray that in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.